0: the show begins. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Pennington with the Spirit of EQ, and joining me today is Jeff East with the Spirit of EQ. Hi, Jeff.
1: Hi, Eric, and everybody out there that's listening and/or watching. And uh,
0: this is the second part of our series on motorcycles, Neil Peart, and emotional intelligence. Uh, We're doing this webinar a little bit different than we have previously in that we don't have any audience participation today. So we'll just be recording it, uh, which you'll be able to check out, obviously, on our YouTube channel and other uh, places as well. So, uh, Jeff, today uh, I'm excited to talk about this again. I know we kind of dug into it a bit in the first uh, part and uh, finding out your history and experience with uh, riding motorcycles And, uh, also that you have that in common with Neil Peart and some things that he's done that, uh, are really good showcases for emotional intelligence. So really looking forward to this. Um, what we'll do now is I'm going to go ahead and share our screen and get our presentation up and then we'll, uh, we'll get right into it. Okay. And there we are. So, um, what you may or may not remember, the slides that, we've, that we're going to look at are going to be around, again, that, that idea of uh, what we can glean from experiences in riding a motorcycle uh, and some of the experiences <laughs> with Neil Peart and emotional intelligence. Uh, one key thing for today is that uh, we're going to focus on primarily uh, the pathway to growth uh, and what happens when you make a change uh, not so much a change that is forced upon you, if you will, but the kind of change where you kind of look at your life or your art or your work or whatever, and, and you say, you know, it's time for me to either get better or do something different. So that's kind of the essence of, of where we're going uh, today. Um, so in the first part, Jeff, we talked a bit about your journey uh, uh, on the bike. Uh, as I may have mentioned, I think, in the first uh, part, I have like zero experience with uh, bikes outside of seeing them on the road. Uh, There's some bikes I've looked at and thought, man, that looks pretty cool. Uh, However, that's about where it stops. So, um, Jeff, uh, in the spirit of that growth and change perspective, um, what over the years have you done that uh, you kind of saw that you needed to change or you needed to adapt to get better at riding?
1: Well, there there is a couple of things. I think some of it comes with age when I, uh, well, first I grew up on a farm, so I I was riding since I was 12 or 13 on dirt bikes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was probably 19 or 20 before I ever actually had wheels to asphalt. So one, that's a dramatic change. Uh, as I got older, like now I don't have any desire to go off road anymore because it's not something I want to do. There's more chance of going down, you know, all kinds of things like that. It's just not what I like. But what I've seen happen is when, when I first started riding on the road, uh, the goal was fast all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the, the kind of things people would say about like going through corners is you would try to drag the axle nut you were leaned over so far, which is impossible. But, you know, it, it was a mark of, Uh, I don't know about courage is the right word, Mm -hmm. but to have your foot pegs kind of ground down a little bit from the way you were going around corners and people would look at your tires and see how far the scuff marks were on the uh, sidewalls. If you look at that tire that's right there, you know, the idea is you just didn't wear the middle of the tire down. You wore the sides down, which proves you were going fast through corners. And, it's still fun to do that very occasionally, but it's not what I like now in writing. I still like to ride quick. Uh, I not a fan of freeways. That is extremely boring. Uh, but now writing and a lot of people think I'm strange when I say that is my quiet time. Oh. And I know, I know we did a podcast about group writing, which I would still, in, or still enjoy that. But now I, I really prefer solo rides. um, uh, because it's just, it's a decompression time for me. You know, when you're writing, even if you're not writing, you know, really fast, you still have to really be concentrating on what you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And for me, I think what happens is that concentration puts all that stuff that's usually churning in our, in our brains every day, the, the stuff we have to deal with and everything else, it has to be put in the back or you'll end up in a bad situation. So it's a decompression time. I've learned that, um, uh, it's a relaxing time. Um, and the other thing I think is, um, what you, what you're thinking about especially as you get older is I've become an offensively defensive drive rider, which is kind of a weird term. Yeah. Uh, I, I've learned that you know there's defensive drive riding in this case since it's a motorcycle, but you have to be offensive with it. You have to be looking ahead. You have to be more aware. And I, I've learned that as I've ridden, uh, you know, when you stop at a stoplight, you watch behind you, and you always have a place, an escape route. Usually, like if it's at a stop site, you 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 stop and with enough room, if somebody doesn't stop behind you, you can get between the cars that are in front of you. Um, wow, a Man, lot then, of that.
0: Can I ask you, Jeff? I interrupt yeah. you,
1: but uh, did you
0: learn that from someone? Uh, and I'm specifically speaking to the because uh, that's really um, that's pretty powerful. The idea that you're giving yourself enough space that if someone behind you doesn't stop, you can maneuver out. Did, Did you learn that –
1: did someone specifically teach that, or did you figure that out uh, sort of – Some books I've read, uh, Hmm. watching other writers, uh, things like that. Um, One of the things that that kind of aggravates me is a lot of accidents that writers get into are instigated by what we call cagers people in cars because they have the steel cage around them. Mm. Uh, but if you're offensively, defensively riding, right, uh, right. you can avoid even those. So a lot of the times it, it it's kind of sad to me that a lot of riders get these accidents they should have been able to ride because they don't know the capability of a motorcycle. Nobody's ever taken the time to show them or taken the time to learn. Uh, a motorcycle has tremendous stopping power compared to a car. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, a tremendous acceleration compared to a car. If something's, you know, coming up from you behind, and because of its size and how it can maneuver, it can get away with things. So that that's what I'm talking about is is knowing your capabilities, knowing the capabilities of the bike. And a lot of people might be hearing this and thinking, well, when I'm riding, all I'm thinking about is doom and despair. But this. You know, we've talked about this before when we talk about emotional intelligence. When it becomes a practice and you've, you've learned how to do it, it's not in the forefront of your mind anymore. So it's not taking away from the fun of the ride, from the relaxation yeah. of the ride. It's just a practice. You just learn to do it. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, and I know that
0: um, here in a little bit we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Neil Peart uh, and his journey as, a, as an artist, as a musician. And it's interesting, uh, Jeff. Um, you know, when you mentioned the, the fact that it, it it's not something that you're s- overtly conscious of anymore, because you've you've practiced it, you've made it your art, if you will. Um, so when you think about some of the things that you've done over the years, whether again they were changes that you needed to make because of you know fill in the blank uh, force change offensive change, if you will, proactive change. Um, What are some of the EQ competencies that maybe come to your mind that you've really relied on to help you in that process?
1: Well, I think part of it is, especially as I've gotten a little bit older when, you know, got married, had kids. So consequential thinking, Uh, Mm. the responsibility I had um, to know that, you know, I do have responsibilities to my wife, to my, my children, to the place I worked. Um, so, so understanding that, you know, if if I want to continue to ride, but I don't want to turn that into something that's going to, uh, um, cause problems for other people or for myself. So that, that is when I really started looking at learning how to hone those skills of of being a safe rider. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's fast riders and then there's good fast riders and try to become one of the latter because right. of, you know understanding that. So, so uh, applying, uh, you know, consequential thinking. And then I think what triggered that is engaging intrinsic motivation. What do I want to get out of writing? What, what is it that I like about it? What is it that mm-hmm. is, is going to motivate me to continue to do it? What is going to motivate me to to get better? So I, I think engaging intrinsic motivation and And that, and then, um the other one, I think would be uh recognizing patterns, you know understanding the motivations for that that kind of thing
0: gotcha, gotcha
1: so that uh that
0: makes a lot of sense. Uh, I can see how that applies, and hopefully those of you who are watching, listening uh can glean some lessons around how you look at various areas of your life that may or may not be uh directly correlated to motorcycle riding. But obviously the uh I can definitely see Jeff how if I apply this approach in multiple areas of life, I'm probably
1: gonna have a better outcome. Um and and, and I think spirit of a, go ahead. I, I think one of the things that we need to mention is any of these terms that maybe they've not heard apply like consequential thinking, engaging innovation. Yeah. Uh, recognizing patterns, those are all competencies in our model of emotional intelligence. And if they go to the Spirit of EQ uh, podcast, they'll have some in depth uh, discussion about those.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great call out, uh, Jeff. And I would highly recommend uh, those of you, again, viewing and listening, uh, to check out our podcast because we have uh, episodes that are dedicated specifically to each of the competencies. I know early on uh, in, in our history there. So that'd be a great place to go. So as we we look at it, um, you know, Jeff, we talked about that as it relates to what you've done to improve or change. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems like you've applied some wisdom across the years in your writing, uh, which, you know, I think most people would appreciate. And it's not a downer. It's not a, you know, hey, I can't do this anymore or that anymore. It's just recognizing Um, I kind of liken it, I'm a big fan of NBA basketball and its history. Uh, You know, as Michael Jordan got older, um, he began to refine his game uh, to create a longer career. Um, And some of that was related to a fadeaway jumper, uh, not to get too wonky in the basketball terminologies. Um, And then you're mentioning of the EQ competencies that you used. Um, And I think uh, for the audience, you know, it'd be a great idea as you're, you know, kind of processing a bit is take an area of your life and those competencies that you, uh, that just Uh,
1: Sorry about that. We got a nut job of a
0: dog. Uh, That's the the power of working remotely. Um, Yes. So with that, um, some of those EQ competencies that you can actually look at and, and kind of use them as tools in, in your pursuits as it relates to whether it's your personal life or professional life. So um, next up, you know, we're going to think about uh, some of the ideas around that journey, because it'd be great if we could make changes and that everything would just happen with the snap of the finger. Um, but as I know, you know, Jeff as well as I do, it just doesn't work that way. No, um, and, and we constant, our constant refrain, you'll hear this in our trainings and, and our one-on-ones is that you, uh, there must be a willingness to put in the work and the practice. Um exactly. The reward the reward for it is is awesome. Um, on the front side, if you're not used to practicing and working, in this case, maybe on yourself, um, it can be a little bit daunting. But uh, trust me, it is worth uh, you know embracing those two ideas. Mm-hmm. So we're going to share a, a brief a video as we begin to talk about Neil uh, Peart. And Jeff, as I as I set up this video a little bit um, and we've talked about this uh, more than a few times, you know, uh, just offline that, you know, he came to a place in his musicianship, his artistry, where he made a decision that he wanted to make some changes to how he approached playing uh, the drum kit. And uh, in this interview, he kind of speaks to that specifically. And then after we look at the video, uh, Jeff, we can discuss some of the things that you okay. and I have yeah. kind of pulled out just, you know, even beyond. So let's go ahead and take a look.
1: Okay.
2: I wonder what your relationship with drumming and how it's changed over the years, because you've been, you've done it so long. And drumming for Rush is not, it's not like you just do, I mean, there's stuff going on there, right? So has your relationship with your, as a, the instrument changed over the years Uh, enormously so in all those inner ways that might be boring to anyone else but i feel them strongly um and it occurred to me lately that the band, even after all these years, 36 years, we're going through changes right now as individual musicians and thus, you know, as, as a unit of mus- musicians. And I found that um, part of it's been deliberate, that I've studied with teachers from time to time. And two years ago, I studied with the great jazz drummer, Peter Erskine, and it was mainly to learn more about big band drumming that I admire. But in the process, of course, I couldn't help learning more about drumming and carried it with me into what I do. And um, the teachers that I've had in the past, I had a great old time teacher in the mid 90s that kind of helped me reinvent the way i approach the instrument that mm. still nourishes me now and the inspiration of other players too when you hear somebody play something great old or new you know it inspires you and i found since i was a little kid not that i wanted to imitate it but it just made me want to play you know and and not and i've heard some musicians say there was a famous one of eric clapton saying he wanted to burn his guitar after hearing Jimmy and and um, um uh, wanting to smash his horn after kicking Miles Davis, that kind of thing. And I never understood that. If I hear somebody great, it makes me want to go home and play like not out of frustration, but out of joy. I mean, you there are a lot of a lot of people who heard a Neil Peart drum and went, "I want to smash my drums." Well, I hear that people say, "Oh, you inspire me to take up drumming." And I said, "I'm sorry to your parents." <laughs> what else can I say? So when
0: you go on, on one of these journeys and you and you've met new teachers and you come back, to Getty and Alex start to panic? Like Neil's back with a new sound. We got to, we have to. Oh God, here we go.
2: Well, of course, they're subtle and incremental, but the, the one big change I made in 95 where I changed the whole setup of my drums and temporarily the way I held the sticks and just dedicated myself to doing everything different. And when I first came back with the band and we were working with producer Peter Collins at the time, and he was listening to my playing on the demos and so on and say well, it doesn't sound that much different to me. And to me, that was a compliment because I changed everything and it still sounded like me. And then when I started playing with the other guys, they did notice the clock was a subtle difference that they had to mesh with me. And I mean, these things are indefinably subtle, but they were things that I've wanted to work on for 20 years and I guess a good advantage, a good example of it is technique. I worked so much with um, sequencers and click tracks that I became remarkably metronomic, you know, but that had a rigidity that went with it. So my mission then became to conquer that and become looser. So if you think of a technique instrument and a feel player. Those are the two differences that I tried to bridge and I'm still trying to bridge. I want to become more improvisational because I'm compositional. And my last uh, drum instructional video was on drum soloing. And I said, I compose a solo and then perform the variations within it as a piece of music for the audience. And right at that moment said, oh, okay, I'm a composer, but I wanna be an improviser. So I started working really hard on that. And now at this point, the first half of my solo is completely improvised from the first beat through, you know, changes that I become familiar with and come to like in the process of a, a night's nice discovery, or even in the night's nice up, I'll come across something, oh, that's good. And it goes in the solo that night. So for a guy that has, for adding the improvisation to your, your, your routine, when you get out on stage and you have to play
0: and you know that the first part is completely improvised, do you get scared?
2: Uh, it, it was nervous making it first, but then you learn to protect yourself <laughs> in that the second half is composed, again, for the audience's benefit. To so just, like, just get there, just get to that second half? Well, it's never, no, I get lost in it and I've made comparisons to exploring in the motorcycle getting lost on roads that close. Yeah. And I wander down rhythmic areas that because I do challenge myself because there are no consequences. There's no mistake. If I do something weird, play it twice and it's a new part, you know, a jazz <laughs> instrument, that's what I told you. <laughs> have you ever had, a,
0: you ever had the, the drumming solo equivalent of a motorcycle? hitting a deer <laughs>
2: but have you ever been to- good comparison because I've certainly had that experience but um, again in soloing you can't and that's why I'm more careful in the band's music because the, the proverbial train wreck where the whole band gets lost is a nightmare and we've over the years of course evolved ways out of that it happens to everybody you miss a rhythm or an echo off the back wall of the venue sometimes could be a half beat out and if you lose concentration for a second you're suddenly half a beat out with the other guy and we just look at each other and you decide okay go with him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. So, uh, what did you see in that interview, uh, Jeff, that really leaped out for you?
1: The idea that he didn't say he was in this video, but in a band is, you know, especially, you know, Rush is a three, three man band. Uh, so every in, you know, they're all integral to it. If, you know, there, it's very noticeable that he talked about adapting if something happened, um, And he didn't really say it, but a rock drummer never gets the credit I think they deserve because they're really the leader in a certain way. They keep everybody together. Uh, You know, if the bass player or the guitar player in this case maybe get out of rhythm some way, they can kind of stop for a few beats and then get right back into it. The drummer has to keep driving the thing and if you listen to some of his songs uh it's so heavily driven by what he's doing but he doesn't do it in a show-off way um the other thing i liked what he talked about is drum solos i am not a fan of drum solos i play the bass i'm not a fan of bass solos that's not their job in the in the uh in in my opinion in a in a band in a group but his drum solos are so amazing. He's probably the only drummer I can really listen to, to do a mm-hmm. drum solo. I've seen him play live, uh, but it's coming from him. And when he talked about the improvisation part, and then the then the structured part, it, it shows his ability uh, to adapt. So that, that really struck me in, in what he was talking about,
0: but just. Yeah, I, I think that his, um, his approaches, I, 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 and typically when I, uh, hear interviews with, uh, artists, I always think about the application, uh, to life. And, um, he mentioned, uh, the inevitability of the mistake. Um, and, even as talented and as skilled, whatever you want to call it, that they are as musicians, the reality that they're going to make mistakes um, and that they have. And the idea that being able to navigate when they happen, I think sometimes in our culture, people feel a tremendous amount of pressure to always get it right, to to have the perfect presentation mm-hmm. or the perfect sales call or the perfect... Um, you know one on one with my manager um and I think at least from a career standpoint um you 're going to be a lot freer when you realize that there is an inevitability of the mistake, and really what matters is how you navigate once the mistake has happened mm-hmm. um How about from an e q perspective? I know I asked you about you know your your experiences in riding a bike um you know obviously, in this case, Neil Peart. Um, made a conscious decision uh, to make a change. Um, what do you think about from that standpoint? How can EQ help when you're in that place, when you're saying, I'm going to go in a different direction?
1: Well, I think it starts with with our first competency, which is, you know, uh, emotional literacy.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: had to, I, I, it's hard to put words into somebody's mouth because you don't know, but it would seem like he would have had these emotions of, I want to get better. Uh, I'm, I'm not really pleased with how I'm playing or I, I know I can do better. So he he needed to understand those emotions and hear what they were telling him. And then once again, I think he would have to engage his intrinsic motivation. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this because I want to be considered the best rock drummer ever, which a lot of people already do consider him that, uh, and I'm one of them. Uh, or am I doing this because this is inside of me that's intrinsic wanting to be known as the best rock drummer ever is extrinsic. It's what other people are saying about it. I think he was very intrinsically motivated to yeah. do what he did, uh, yeah. to put the effort into what he did. Um, uh, when, you know, one of the, one of, a sad day was when I heard the rush was retiring. Um, the get uh, Neil and then the, the guitar player Alex Lifeson both have joint bursitis and tendinitis. And uh, if you've ever seen Neil play, it's so physical, he's got bursitis in both shoulders. Yeah. So they could have easily went their career and not tried to improve and everybody would have been happy except them, except Neil. He wouldn't have been happy, I don't think. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. I think also too, um You know, sometimes, uh, you know, in in an age where we seem to be living on reaction, um, getting up every day and just reacting to whatever's thrown at us, good, bad, or in between, I think emotional intelligence is a key uh, tool that you can use to add some proactivity inside of what comes at you every day. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that uh, you use the intrinsic motivation versus the extrinsic, uh, you know, those... (laughs) those pursuits uh the things that happen outside of us are just gonna happen uh however we have a choice every day to to go inward right mm-hmm. find out where we want it to go and though we can't guarantee it and we don't have control over our future we can certainly put ourselves in a position to have some influence on it as we're moving through so um as we get close to the end here um a powerful reflection, uh, excuse me, question to reflect on. If you're an audience, uh, in the audience, uh, what's one thought-provoking idea you gleaned from today's session that you can apply in the next week? And I know for me, um, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, Jeff, nor did I online, I was reading an interview, uh, an old interview with Miles Davis from Spin Magazine uh, back in 1985. That's when the interview was conducted. And um, he talked about as an artist, he had always had a desire to want to move forward and wanting to, uh, to be better and to find new ground and new places. And it really has been inspiring for me to examine those areas of my life that I want that as well. Recognizing and for the audience is that You know, you might have some folks that maybe will be uncomfortable with your desire to improve or get better. However, I would tell you, it's not uh, we're not advocating that you um, tell those people to uh, hit the high way. It's (laughs) kind of you in a very subtle way saying I'm going to do this because it's what's best for me and I want you along for the journey. But if it's not something you can support or be a part of, I understand. At least that's my perspective. Um, yes. Is there anything, Jeff, from you that was thought provoking from the session between the motorcycle ride and from uh, Neil Peart?
1: Well, I, I think it wasn't really so much about anything we talked about. It was, you know, some of the stuff I was looking at, and before he, I read an a really good in Death article in Modern Drummer, and we talked about the last question the person asked is he, this interviewer had been observing them as they were uh, getting ready uh, recording an album. And he asked, he, he noticed that when Neil was going back and listening to a track and they were also videotaping it, uh, he was not looking at himself. He had his eyes closed. So he was not concentrating on his technique as he was playing it. He was concentrating on, is this how I want it to sound? So I think as leaders, we need to concentrate on, am I getting the results I want and not so much am I doing the technique the right way, paying attention to what's going on around you. If you're in an organization, am I bringing to that organization what I should be bringing and not worrying about how I do it, worrying or not worrying, but being aware of the results you're getting. Because not if you're not pay- <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. If you're not, if you're not paying attention to the results that you're getting, how else do you know if you're doing what you need to be doing? And wow. he was paying attention to the results he wanted to get. Uh, yeah. I've read a, a cup seven a book by Neil, Neil Peart and, and, he is a very, very deep thinker. And I think he does that in every part of his life. So I just, that's really what I'm thinking. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, you know, um, your uh, your insights there uh, really got me thinking about um, this idea about um, the why behind, you know, our endeavors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know in some organizations, maybe many organizations where there's such a, uh, emphasis on technique and, and, um, and technical skill and and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can get lost. The the idea about, you know, why are we doing this and and what results are we getting? And if the results that we're getting are not what we want, are we stopping right and evaluating and kind of asking ourselves, (laughs) what's the purpose here? Um, And that kind of takes me back to your motorcycle, uh, from even part one of of this series, you know, these ideas of, you know, you didn't just hop on a bike and just accelerate and have no recollection or any kind of insight as to what you were doing. Um, and I think oftentimes that can happen, right? You, you're told you you should be this, you should do that. And you just kind of mechanically do it and not really understand, you know, the depth of of what's in front of you. So, yeah, I
1: I think one of the things that I really learned from writing is it's a very visceral activity. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you've got your, you know, uh, my cost on concourse, you know, I've literally got a hundred horsepower engine two inches from my knees. So you've got that, feeling of power you've got the wind you, you feel every you know literally you can feel the paint lines as you go over them um and, and then small things the noise of the engine the noise of the wind and if you're riding through the country i've smelt bread breaking or bread baking out of somebody's house as you're driving so it's it's very visceral so you, you all your senses are involved and i think that's as a as a leader you need to be that way. And that includes the senses of your emotions, your gut. Yeah, um,
0: powerful. That's powerful. Well, Jeff, uh, as always, I appreciate you uh, joining today. And for I those, enjoyed it. it. It was fun. It was very fun. And uh, we um, will sign off now. And um, if you have uh, additional questions or want to get to know us a little bit better, um, here's our contact information. Um, email is typically the best way to reach us. If you'd Mm -hmm. like to learn more about what we do and how we do it. And uh, certainly even if you have questions about what you've uh, heard or seen here today, more than happy to respond to you. So with that, uh, I am going to exit out. And Jeff, again, appreciate your time. Glad you could join and uh, we'll see you next time.
1: All right, thank you much.
0: All right, take care. Hi everyone, this is Eric Pennington with The Spirit of EQ. I'm not introducing a new episode today. I'm here to tell you some things that might help
1: you. Jeff, you're with me as always. So yes. how do people get in touch with us? Well, the best way is just send us an email at info at That's awesome.
0: Jeff, I
1: was also thinking
0: about reviews and I'm notoriously bad at asking for them. So
1: reviews on all of the platforms wherever you get your podcast yes. you think that'd be good I think that would be great because one that will help us learn how to make better ones and it's always good for us so here. we're not the perfect podcast host we're close okay all but, right but, but not, still not totally we want perfect. your feedback we want your feedback but it'll it also might uh, let us know a new subject hey we need to dig deeper into that yeah. so let us know what you think cool we really
0: appreciate that as always too there is social media linkedin facebook and we also have a youtube channel those also have mechanisms or, or options for you to be able to leave a comment a like of those kind of things just want to make sure that you know how to get in touch with us right jeff right we appreciate you all thank you Once again, we really appreciate you tuning in today. One of the things that Jeff and I want to bring to your attention as well is that when we created this podcast, it was not intended to take the place of a clinician. In other words, if you find yourself in a place where there's something deeper going on or something that you cannot solve on your own, we do recommend that you reach out to a clinician of some sort. This podcast is purely opinion-based And it is rooted in the desire to help you along your path in whatever way we can. However, it is never going to replace, nor should it ever be looked at as a replacement for clinical help in any way. Thanks again for tuning in.